Alex Simmons. Ah! Alex Simmons, ladies and gentlemen, let me put out a national tell the damn story security warning. Those of you who are in the South, most particularly Atlanta, bar the door and lock the windows because Alex Simmons, that erudite, <laughs> literate, adventurous creator of all things is loose in your town. Worse Oops. than that, he is awaiting the reunion of Alex Simmons and the great, the legendary, the mythical Don McGregor. Now, when the two of those get together, you know there's the saying that the South's going to rise again. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, Atlanta, Hotlanta is going to be reborn with Alex Simmons and Don McGregor running loose. So be warned. Your meds aren't working. That's what <laughs> Hey, listen, I'm doing the public service. That's one of the many yeah, yeah. services of Tell the Damn Story. We have to warn the cities that Godzilla has arrived. In this case, yeah, so Alex Simmons here. is in Atlanta. What are you doing in Atlanta, Alex? I'm down here in Atlanta because <laughs> I'm uh, myself and the great Don McGregor were invited to be a part of a, a wonderful event that's taking place. I'll just do this very quickly. Then I got a quick Don McGregor story to tell you. Uh, Don and I uh, were invited here by the commissioner, uh, whose name I will uh, pull up here in a moment. Uh, but anyway, the uh, this commissioner here. Oh, there it is. There I had to find it. Commissioner Marvin Arrington Jr. Right. Uh, here in Atlanta, uh, invited us to come down to be uh, participants in an event called The Color of Comics Behind the Black Panther. Right? Beautiful. So it's Beautiful. A, an all-day event. It starts at 10 in the morning. It goes to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. There are a number of things going on. One of the things is Don and I on a panel at 3 o'clock from 3 to 4 on, on the Black Saturday? Panther. Excuse me. On Saturday. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's Saturday, August 31st. Right now, it's Friday, folks. You know, so it's like we're playing time tunnel here. So it's Friday evening, and uh, Don and I are going to be doing this. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. Don, Don and I were supposed to be flying in. Right? I flew in from New York. I got in around 1.30 this afternoon. And Pretty boy, are his arms tired. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, the meds definitely aren't working. So um, Don was doing a convention in New Mexico earlier in the week, and so it was also on a vacation with the family. So his thing was to fly from New Mexico here, and it was a layover, a short one, a brief one, in Dallas, Texas. Well, that short and brief got cut real quick because he landed in Dallas, Texas, I don't know, somewhere around maybe 2 or, or, or 1 o'clock this afternoon, right around the time I was landing here. And they said his flight was delayed, the, the connecting flight to, from Dallas to, to, to uh, Atlanta. And then they said it was delayed again, and then it was delayed again. And then <laughs> finally somewhere around 4.30 or something like that, they said it's canceled. And it seems to be because of the weather. I don't know if the storm that's happening in Florida right now, I'm not sure. But either well, way, poor Don. Poor Don has been up from 6.30 in the morning. Oh. He's now been in an airport in Dallas, Texas since, oh, around, like I said, around 1 or 2 o'clock. They got him on another flight, but that's not coming out until 9.40, which means he won't get here to Atlanta until midnight. So Man. anybody who comes to see this panel, I want you to light candles and thank 
thank McGregor for everything because he's putting himself through all kinds of nonsense to get here to do this event tomorrow. And I'm going to try and activate this up before Sunday. But if you hear it on Sunday and it's after the fact, well, you know what? Send him some love anyway. Yeah, talk about Panthers rage, baby. But I, I, will, <laughs> I will tell you how, if, uh, if you're down in the Atlanta area and you're listening to this on Sunday and you wanted to see that panel, now here's all you got to do. All right, so you put on Avengers Endgame and you reach into the television and you get yourself some PIM particles. And you go back 24 hours, and then you can enjoy it. See? All things are possible through comics, ladies and gentlemen. We're, we're going we're gonna to do a shorter version of the show tonight, because this man needs to go to bed. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm a problem solver. That's what I am. So now, yeah, yeah. now exactly that you are, you are, now that we've established that you're in, in Atlanta, uh, and and about to set loose with you and the eventually arriving Don McGregor for some mm-hmm. quality conversation in Atlanta in the Color of Comics mm-hmm. conference, we have to do one of the more interesting segues of uh, of tell the damn story history. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Alex Simmons and Don McGregor are storytellers of high adventure of action of impact even, they, even psychology are superheroes because that's, that's part right. of why i'm here it's the black panther psychology book that's right which you co-edited the black panther in psychology available everywhere now and that's one yeah. of the reasons you're on the panel uh i think don wrote a little something for that he wrote the forward to that and i co the book with Dr. Travis Langley and uh, a number, uh, I wrote some stuff, but I wrote it with also a number of other artists and psychologists who worked on this book. And, that's and we'll beautiful. talk about the theory other time. Now, now, the wonderful thing is that while you're a high adventurous, you're not the stars of this episode. That's the right. The featured interview today are with much more refined and elegant folk. Now you are, well, you're fine and you are elegant, but the two we interviewed, or I got to interview, I was was blessed to interview so many interesting people at the Deadly Inc. Mystery Conference in the beautiful Parsippany, New Jersey, um, uh, earlier in August. And today's interview, I took a risk. I just I just had a hunch that this would be an interesting conversation and I interviewed two cozy mystery writers. Eileen Watkins and Peggy Earhart. Friendly now, people. Say what now? Well, I said I'm glad to know that they were friendly people. You said they were cozy. Oh, stop that now. Cozy <laughs> mysteries are a, a subgenre of the mystery uh, oh. uh, writing and there's a fascinating set of rules with cozy mysteries. Uh, one, uh, no overt violence <clears throat> happens on screen or on stage, however you want to say. Um, and secondly, the chief investigator cannot be in law enforcement. They have to be more of a, you know, uh, um, a layperson, that kind of stuff, which 
creates fascinating challenges that these two uh, authors solve or resolve beautifully. Uh, both of them are very experienced writers. Say what? They don't write together, right? They no, write no, they're very, they, they have their own series. They are, they are published in the same company, and that comes out in the interview. Uh, but one of the things that was so fascinating, Eileen Watkins and Peggy Earhart both write cozies, both work uh, published through the same company, and mm -hmm. their approach to writing, to planning, to uh, pre-writing, writing, and post-writing, it couldn't be further apart. You know, uh, if they weren't sitting in front of me so gracious and elegant, I would have thought more about like the odd couple, you know, but there's no oh, Oscar I, Madison here. There's no there's no slob. These are fantastic, uh, uh, classy, classy people. And uh, it's just their approach is almost not quite polar opposite, but almost there. And what it allows uh, people who are interested in the writing process, what it allows them to do is to see, you know, there's so many different ways to approach the art of writing, to solve the problems before you. I mean, that's really what writing a novel is, is to, you know, you get an idea and then you solve the problems until you have a novel, right? Uh, where's the whole, where's the structure, where's the, re the requirement of the genre? And uh, these two are fascinating in the way they describe how they do what they do. Uh, it was a really entertaining interview. Um, and I was, I remain very grateful that they gave us uh, their time. So this is what we're going to hear today. We're going to hear Eileen Watkins and we're going to hear Peggy Earhart. And uh, man, you should really enjoy this because this is a fun interview. That's a great lead. And I just want to ask you maybe one or two quick questions. Um, because you were there, we weren't, and, you know, mm -hmm. we, the audience. Um, do you feel, having had this experience with them, because I believe you said you hadn't planned it this way, you didn't know that they had polar opposite. Of, well, I was just people. asking people who, was inter who were right, interested right. in being interviewed, so, and they so kept coming together in my mind. So, yeah. Right. So, what I'm, what I'm curious about is, did you feel that you went away from this experience, from this particular interview, having learned anything that will influence or give you, you know, something to think about as you go forward with your own writing? Well, um, definitely. Uh, my wife, the goddess, and I have been playing around with um, a Jersey Shore investigative team. And a lot of the stuff that we learned from uh, these two very gracious interviewees, uh, authors, and a few others that we talked to over the weekend uh, gave us a great education as to what we were doing right and what we were doing wrong. Um, but also, I mean, I'm in the process of uh, rewriting um, a book of mine, the first novel that actually won three awards. And as I'm going through it, page after page, sentence after sentence, um, echoes of what I learned over that uh, great weekend with Deadly Inc. have definitely influenced me, you know. Mm. Uh, I had to drop a lot of the, uh, how shall we say, uh, colorful dialogue. And uh, <laughs> the book is better for it, you know. Uh, it may sound a little less like a Bronx street corner, but it definitely sounds more like a novel. And uh, uh, the collective influence of those that we've been talking to for Tell the damn story, including Alex Simmons live in Atlanta and 
<laughs> landing, prepare yourself for that. Uh, but also uh, uh, generous people like Eileen and Peggy. So uh, I think it's worth your time, and I encourage you to listen and enjoy the interview. Well, then let's absolutely do that. And and folks, as you know, if you listen to the previous episode, which was episode 101, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know that we will not come back at the end of this to to banter and, and all of that. So please do, as Chris said, A, enjoy the interview. B, please let us know what you think, you know, what you get out of it, what you, anything that you might feel inspired to say, share, or whatever. Afterwards, please drop it in the comments, send us an email, all that good stuff. And without further ado, because I almost never say that, but here, here you go. Without further ado, here is Eileen and Eileen and Peggy to tell their damn story. That's right. And you can use damn in their books. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Take care, brother. Peace, Alex. Enjoy. Atlanta, beware. <laughs> Hey, it's Chris Ryan uh, for Tell the Damn Story, and I'm here at Deadly Ink Mystery Writers Conference with Eileen Watkins and Peggy Earhart, who both write cozy mysteries, and I'm going to get myself an education on cozies. So, Eileen, could you say hello and tell us a little bit about what you write? Hello. Um, I write the Cat Groomer Mysteries, uh, published by Kensington, and... Um, they involve a woman who has a cat grooming and boarding business in northwestern New Jersey, and she solves murders connected with her customers. Keep going. And um, basically, cozies, I guess, um, usually involve an amateur sleuth. Uh, they are. They do not involve any graphic sex or violence. Um, so you have to manage to make things suspenseful and interesting within those parameters. Excellent, excellent. And Peggy, what do you write? I write the Knit and Nibble series, also for Kensington. My sleuth is an amateur sleuth. She is an associate editor at a craft magazine called Fiber Craft, which ties into the knitting idea. She's also the founder of a knitting club in the charming New Jersey town where she lives, Arborville. The club has six members. They are ongoing characters from book to book. Each one is eccentric in his or her own way. There is one man in the club. My sleuth solves crimes, partly because she has specialized knowledge that the police don't. She knows things about yarns and dyes and knitting techniques that often turn out to be the hidden clues in the mysteries she's solving. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So um, first let's talk about your background I know you were a journalist, so you want to talk a little bit about where you were before you became a uh, cozy writer? Sure. A cozy author? Sure. Um, well, I wanted to write fiction my entire life, and uh, you always hear that you can't make a living at it, um, so I became a, a writer in the best way that I knew how, which was to work for newspapers. So I was always in the feature section um, in some capacity, but I worked for the Star-Ledger uh, in New Jersey, which is the biggest newspaper in New Jersey, for um, about 25, 26 years. And then I took a short break um, doing PR and freelancing, and then I worked for The Record, which is the second largest newspaper in New Jersey, for uh, 10 years. And all of this was, um, you know, daily and hitting deadlines and all that sort of stuff. 
So I did all my fiction writing uh, in the evenings and on weekends. And um, the first few books that I wrote were uh, mostly paranormal. I wrote paranormal thrillers, which I tend to define as horror light, you know, not super, super nasty, but always with um, thrillers with a paranormal element. Mm -hmm. And then the last two that I wrote were um, paranormal mysteries, which kind of became the the, uh, jumping off point. Um, it took me a long while to start getting published, but um, around 2002, 2003, I found a, a very respectable print-on-demand small publisher who started putting out my stuff and um, got it all published eventually. And then um, many years later, about uh, 2015, they were going out of business. I was actually looking at retirement and thinking, now I'll be able to write full time. And I was very disappointed that they were going out of business. And I was approached by an agent uh, who had read one of the paranormal mysteries that was not quite cozy, but it had that kind of voice. It was a a first person uh, amateur sleuth. And um, he asked me if I'd be interested in in writing uh, this cozy mystery series. So um, he suggested three topics, two of which involved cats. I picked the one that involved somebody who was a little more serious, involved somebody who uh, worked with animals for a living, because I really am an animal freak, uh, and I, I knew that I could get into somebody who took animals seriously and advocated for them and whatever. So um, I've been very happy doing that, and I have three books out now i won't go into too much detail early on but you know three books out now uh, fourth one coming out at the end of the year and i'm working on the fifth one that's it peggy what's your background well like eileen i always knew i was destined to be a writer i won an essay contest when i was in third grade and then i became the writer and so every time there was a writing assignment in class everyone would want to read my thing because they would think that oh it's her thing is going to be really good But I also realized that you can't make a living as a writer. So I went to graduate school and got a doctorate in medieval literature. And I had a teaching career for several decades. In the late 1980s, I had one of those midlife crisis experiences where you ask yourself, is that all? And I decided I had to learn how to play the guitar or I absolutely would not be happy. So I learned how to play the electric guitar, and I eventually formed a band that played local gigs and had a great time with it. And at around that same time, I decided to dive back into the uh, process of trying to write fiction. I had done a lot of writing in my academic career, but it was academic writing, which I enjoyed, but it wasn't making up stories. So the first mystery series that I tried to launch was based in this guitar world. I created an amateur sleuth who was a singer in a blues band. And the story unfolded as she was trying to solve the murder of her guitar player. And the scenes took place in places like rehearsal studios in Manhattan, or kind of grungy blues bars, or Hackensack, where she lived in a grungy apartment, because that's all she could afford. And the books were published by a small press that accepted submissions directly from an author without an agent as a go-between. I tried many agents for that project, but they all thought that the project was sort of too specialized and wouldn't appear to appeal to a large enough audience to make it worthwhile to a large publisher. But I did two books in that series. 
uh, my character was named Max Maxwell, and I just called them the Max Maxwell Mysteries, and they're still available on Kindle. But I then later also was approached by an agent, the same agent who approached Eileen, and in fact she referred him to me, to ask if I'd be interested in a cozy series, and that's how Knit and Nibble got launched. Now, um, I want to get into uh, writing routines, but both of your series involve, uh, among other things, animals. So, and you just did a panel, Animal Kingdom, as a matter of fact, here at Deadly Inc., <laughs> beautiful Parsippany. Um, so why the, why the cats? Why the animals? What is, how is, does that add uh, to this particular genre? Well, as I said, um, the topic was one of three suggested to me, but I always have been an animal lover. I've always, I, I'm, I was an only child, so I like to say I had pets instead of siblings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I learned to take them very seriously and consider them characters. And um, I also, um, I, I like all animals. Um, I like dogs just fine. I had a dog when I was a child, but uh, my other big love is horses, so I always have animals in my life. And... Um, uh, as I said, when this topic was suggested to me, I thought, I, I, this is not going to, this won't be a silly cozy. This will be something I can do something with. Um, I can take on various uh, animal rescue causes. I can deal with, you know, irresponsible breeding. I can, and, and the other thing that I like about it is that um, in a murder mystery, you got to have a strong motive. You got to have an emotional motive uh, in one way or the other for someone to actually kill someone. And, um, Animals bring out strong emotions in people. Um, in fact, sometimes the person who was killed is somebody who was, was advocating for animals and felt it was so important that they, you know, riled other people. Um, my character gets involved because she is concerned, you know, feels sorry for the person who was murdered, wants justice for them or whatever. But often she's also trying to protect an animal associated with them. Um, and. Uh, this, this kind of made it interesting for me. Um, I don't think I'd be able to write a typical cozy that just involves um, antagonism between people for venal reasons, superficial reasons. I think the animals gives it a, gives it a certain heart. It gives me, it helps, has, gives me a way into it that I, is emotionally gripping, and I think it does that probably hopefully for the reader also. Excellent, and uh, Peggy? Well, I yeah. Okay. Oh, I had read enough cozies to suspect that cats were very important in formulating these projects, and I base in my story in the very first book, Murder She Knit, my character adopts a stray cat that shows up on her front porch, and my husband and I actually had had that experience. Although we weren't able to adopt the creature, it was just too shy ever to come into our house. But we fed it for weeks and weeks and weeks, a couple of times a day. It would appear because it knew that these beings in this house would put food out on the porch. But it was so skittish. And finally it just stopped coming. And we still talk about what could have happened to it. So that was in my mind though. And it was black, a pure black little cat in the winter. So that was in my mind when I started writing Murder, She Knit, the first book in the series. And it just, in the way that the imagination works, weaving together things that have really happened with things that the mind is creating, 
it just popped into my mind. And so the story actually opens with my character wondering if the little cat is going to show up again that day. And during the course of the book, eventually she does adopt it. It comes running inside because it's frightened by some wild turkeys in the street that are making such frightening (laughs) noises. And then it becomes her cat. So in the subsequent books, it is her cat. And then it has kittens and she adopts one of the kittens as well. So it becomes an ongoing character. So what other elements besides uh, animals uh, um, go into a cozy? We'll talk about the off-screen violence in a minute, but other than those two things, what else can you expect from a cozy? Well, the setting is uh, kind of key. Um, There's the idea of having a closed community, which is why a lot of them are set in um, uh, small towns, usually picturesque small towns with interesting characters. And um, uh, in, my, in my case, I wanted to find a small town that wasn't, wasn't too pretty, uh, wasn't too idyllic, had, was rough around the edges, had some rough around the edges characters, because I wanted there to be a range of you know, haves and have-nots who could get into uh, conflicts with each other. And I'm um, trying to think there was something else. Um, oh, uh, usually, because you've got an amateur sleuth, Usually these people are entrepreneurs if they have jobs. I mean, occasionally there's uh, somebody who is just, you know, is, is a homemaker and, you know, is just working around her husband and kids' schedules and whatever. Um, uh, but usually they have jobs that aren't too demanding, although my character's job can be demanding. Uh, but she's an entrepreneur, so if she wants to go out and leave her assistant in charge and, and go sleuthing, she can do that. Um, so the, the whole business of having a cat grooming and boarding business, um, although it's, it's different, I don't know of any other um, cozy mystery, char- mystery characters who have anything quite like that. Um, it fits in well with the idea of running your own shop, running your own business, being your own boss, so that you can you know, um, take off if you want to, to follow up on a clue. Excellent. Well, my books are very, very, very cozy. And in my mind, the very, very, very cozy novel is like a Martha Stewart magazine with a murder. (laughs) It It has people living in beautiful houses, eating beautiful meals, cooking, enjoying cooking, gardening, enjoying gardening, doing crafts. And in my book, the craft is the knitting, and there's the knitting club. But I call the books Knit and Nibble because the club, when it meets once a week, the host uh, serves a dessert with coffee and tea. They meet in the evening, so they knit for a while, and then the host brings out a delicious dessert, and they eat the dessert, and they have coffee and tea, and they chat for a while, and then they go back to their knitting. So in my mind, the essence of that cozy, cozy, cozy type of cozy is to create Uh, an an imaginary world, really, that many people would like to live in to escape from the stresses and strains of the real world. Excellent. And now let's get to the violence that that cannot be, right? Uh, If it's a murder, if it's a crime, those tend to be a violation of some kind. But that violation doesn't fit into the genre of cozy. So it's an interesting writing challenge. How do you write about a murder without showing the murder? How much can you talk about that particular murder? So what are the kind of the rules and the challenges there? 
Well, I think I've pushed the boundaries a little and never gotten any, uh, any censorship. Um, in my first book, at the end of the first chapter, um, my character, I, I tried to, I was so concerned with following the rules that I tried to have the classic setup. And um, she walks into the house of her, um, her most wealthy, her wealthiest client, um, who is the only person she pays house calls for because he actually has a grooming studio for his Persian cat in his house. And um, she comes in and she finds him dead in his study with a gash over the back of his head. I'm trying to remember if anybody, if I, the bash was a little too, the gash was a little too um, graphically described, if I got a little, any pushback on that. But um, I, you know, I kept it to a minimum. I knew I could, I could get away with that because they've shown that on Murder, She Wrote, so obviously I can get away with that. Um, then, you know, bodies are found by other people. Usually nobody is killed in a particularly grisly fashion. Um, but my character has confronted um, bad guys at the climax of the book and been in some pretty scary situations. And people have had guns and people have had, you know, threatened her in other ways. Um, so I think you can have action without having it be uh, brutal. And the, the interesting thing is, you're not dealing with cops, you're not dealing with PIs, you're not dealing with people who have a lot of weapons. So even your villains sometimes don't come into a situation armed. They gotta grab something that's, that's handy. Um, your sleuth almost always has to grab something that's handy. Um, so there isn't an awful lot of, of people, you know, being shot instantly. They usually have to come up with a clever situation where they're, they're trying to outsmart each other and they're trying to figure out what they can use and, and how they can get away with it. Um, you need to use your wit more than you do if somebody, you know, constant scenes of people coming in and say, okay, you're going to die now, you know. Um, and I even have, slight spoiler alert, I even have someone uh, uh, mauled with, distracted by being mauled by a cat in the, the first book because I thought I had, to, I had to do that, you know. And I think the way I set it up was kind of unexpected and fun. Excellent. That's excellent. So how do you go about that challenge? Well, the, the body is found, but we don't see the murder happening. And usually it's the sleuth who finds the body in my stories. And that's one of the things that pulls her into getting interested in trying to figure out what happened. In my first one, Murder, She Knit, I thought, all right, let it all hang out. The murder weapon was a knitting needle <laughs> and okay. uh, stabbed through but the heart. But that could be pretty graphic. But see, you only come upon the body. You don't see the. You don't see the see needles. The, the needle sticking in. Okay. Well, you see the knitting needle sticking out of the body, but you don't see the actual murdering happening. And okay. in a couple other ones, I've used the struck with a blunt object on mm -hmm. the head, and so the the corpse just is there and is dead, but you don't see giant pools of blood or horrible things. You don't see flesh torn with gunshot wounds. In the one that's coming out this fall, it actually, the murder took place with a, a gun. But And I was thinking, oh, that is that not cozy? But then I decided the gun would be an antique gun that had been stored in someone's attic for ages and ages, dating from the era when a grand person lived in this grand house and did sort of gentleman hunting. So that, that seemed to work. Um, it's only my self-imposed rule. Perhaps it would have been okay to have it be a regular modern gun, but I thought that made it a little bit cozier because it's something to do with the past and it's not that these people had guns in their house that they got out and polished them every day or something. 
Okay. And, and the name of your publisher again? It's Kensington. Kensington. So, um, how much, uh, how involved is Kensington in the process? Is it once you submit the entire manuscript and you hear back from them, or how hands-on are they? Well, they want, um, I think it's probably the same process for both of us, um, they want um, a fairly detailed outline ahead of time, which is the most challenging for me, because even though I always eventually outlined my books in the past, they were not on deadline, nobody was waiting for them, um, I preferred to write a few chapters and decide where I'm going and then outline a few chapters ahead and have a basic idea of where it's headed. Um, so I am asked to give them um, somewhat of an outline with the major plot points um, well ahead of time. Well, Including you know, resolution? Uh, yeah, the general, general idea of how it's going to be resolved. Um, the resolution isn't so important because they're not going to put that in the back cover copy. They're not going to tell people how it comes out. However, they are going to put other things in the back cover copy. And uh, I did find have a little problem recently because um, I had an idea in my outline of the first person who was going to be killed. And uh, I changed it because I thought, you know, this doesn't be logical. There's no way the killer would be able to get to this person. But, you know, I'll make it a security guard. That's the kind of the person that the killer would run into. And it got on the back cover copy that the person taking care of the cat was the one killed. And I was, oh, well, you've got to change that. And, and my editor got kind of upset and he said, well, okay, but if you're going to do this in the future, you let us know ahead of time because it costs us money to change that back cover. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? That's why I don't like being pinned down. So, uh, But then um, they, they look at that and then they approve that. And then they... Um, you know, I then they there is of course uh, you submit the manuscript and it's gone over by two editors. It's gone over by an editor who's looking at it somewhat for content, uh, sentence structure will maybe suggest a different way of expressing something, and then finally you know you go over the galleys, which is is nitpicking for any kind of typos and sure. things like that. Um, I've been lucky in that I haven't gotten any feedback saying change this plot point, change this character. Um, I'm sure that could happen um, in, when they first read the manuscript. Um, so far they've been happy with it. But as I said, I, I published eight books with the previous publisher. Um, went through a similar process where you know there was, things were questions and stuff like that. And I go to a critique group um, and I always put my stuff through the critique group feedback before I submit it. So I've had fairly you know, knowledgeable people say, that doesn't work for me. I don't think that's believable. I, I, with any luck, I've weeded out that stuff before it's gotten to the, the sure. point of being submitted to the publisher. Okay. So your, far. your experience? Well, similar in that Eileen and I have the same editor at Kensington even, but you Can asked... Can name the name? Yeah, John Sconemilio, because I, I acknowledge him in the in the acknowledgments of the book, so it's no big yeah, secret yeah, who yeah. he is. But to backtrack a little bit, um, Kensington actually has, has a pretty clear idea of what kinds of themes they want in these books, because when I was recruited by um, Eileen's agent, he said they were looking for a craft, cozy, craft, meaning it would have a craft in it, involving a knitting club. And so it was that specific. And this agent sells a lot to John at Kensington. 
and he had heard from John. We're, we're recruiting now. We want to add this particular kind of title to our list. We would love to do something with a knitting club. Can you find an author who will write a craft cozy with a knitting club? So it was that specific in terms of the sort of product they were looking for. And uh, I've always been a knitter, so it was perfect. I was just thrilled to get this project. But and I did not know that when I suggested her. Yeah. Well, I had read her blues books, and well, I said I thought she was a really good writer, and I knew that had been discontinued. So I said, uh, you know, I know she can, can do a cozy. I said, but I'm not sure if you're interested in knitting. So. Yep. And I was. That's perfect. Right. But um, I love outlining, actually. So unlike Eileen, <laughs> I'm just p perfectly happy to make an extremely detailed outline and submit it. And I've always done that with the earlier. Uh, mystery project. Once you finish an extremely detailed uh, outline, do you always stick with it? I, I I would only ever change just the most minor details. Mm -hmm. I I always figure out pretty solidly in advance who's going to be the killer and who's going to be the first victim and who's going to be a subsequent victim if there is one right. and who the other suspects will be and. I find that having a really, really detailed outline makes it very easy to sit down every day and write because I know exactly what I'm writing. I'm going to write the beginning of this scene in which whatever happens. Textbook plotter. I'm a textbook plotter. It's That's just great. me. So, so let's talk. This leads us perfectly into process, right? And I'd love to kind of get three, three quick steps from the uh, initial idea how much do you develop, you know, uh, in the brain, just walking around and imagining where the story is going? And then, how long does it take to to get settled, you know, from first word to end of outline, and then to do the manuscript? So, what is your process? Uh, how much do you think first, and then outline, and then write? Well, as I suggested, um, I it's difficult for me to create a detailed outline with the idea of sticking to it because I find an awful lot of things happen along the way. Uh, we have a certain uh, a word count to aim for and I have a tendency to, um, well, you know, first, uh, if I'm conceptualizing, I have to turn in the outline. Um, I'll breeze through the, the stuff that's in the outline and be only halfway through my word count. You know, I can, I can, you know, when I, if and I, do you I go back and expand those yeah, things? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, now that I've realized that I have a tendency to do that, I'm starting to try to add more detail along the way so that I don't have to go back and, you know, arbitrarily put more stuff in. But the first time that I, I wrote one of these books, um, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm zipping along. I'm really, oh, I'm at the end of the story and I'm <laughs> supposed to have 20,000 more words, you know? So um, I don't like being in that position because then you start, you have to really think to not pad. You know, right. I don't want it to sound like padding. I almost have to add another subplot at that point or whatever. Well, I would imagine that your experience as a journalist uh, has given you the, hit, the habit of writing type. Yes, yeah. that's true. That's true. I have, do have a tendency to write that. It's really a lot easier for me to cut than it is for me to expand because you just have to come up with more stuff. Right. You may have to come up with more characters. Um, it's, it's a little hard to do that after the fact. So um, I've developed a tendency of trying to take that first draft um, fairly slowly and uh, uh, 
expanded along the way. And, and the tendency where I would tend to be very terse, I'd say, no, 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 don't do that. If you can think of more stuff to put in here that makes it better, do it now, you right, know, right. or you'll, you'll be killing yourself trying to expand it later. So, timeline, how long do you think about a story before you start writing, or do you just start writing? Well, I may start... I mean, outline, but... Yeah, I may start thinking about the story, um, you know, in some fashion uh, before the last one is done, mm -hmm. because I know that there's going to be another one, and I really, you know, almost have to give them an idea ahead of time. So as soon as I conceptualize it enough to give them information, I'm starting to process it a little bit in my mind while I may still be working on the last one. Right. Um, so is that uh, a month, a week? What does it tend to be? Well, that would that would probably be a few months because I'm sending things, you know, right. I'm I'm still finalizing a book. Right. Uh, and then the while, is the while next one. you know, they already they already have asked for some some material on the next one, so. So, and uh, how long do you think for an outline, and then how long for the manuscript? Um, well, I'm given I, the first couple of books I wrote in six months because okay. that was what they wanted. Then after they got the first three books out, um, I was moving. I asked for a year. Uh, it became a year which is a lot more comfortable because you can, can do other things and it doesn't have to be constantly under the gun. So um, it would it takes me a, a year, um, you know, once I get an outline and I'm really, but I'm, I'm kind of working at a leisurely pace at that point. I'm trying to, you know, expand it as much as possible, really get into the story. When I was doing six months, I was like trying to be very efficient, you know, so. Peggy, from, from thought to outline to finished, well, as Eileen said, ideas for future books start percolating even while one's writing a current book. And so when I get an idea, I write it down, of course, and put it in a file. So I have a file with various random ideas in it that are the percolations of what might turn out to be book number seven or book number eight or whatever. But when I sit down to formally start preparing an outline, to submit to my editor, it would maybe take a week to get the whole outline finalized, but it's using ideas that I've already developed. And then to really get those ideas crystallized, I sit down at my dining room table with a pad of lined paper and a pencil. It has to be a pencil, not a pen. And I just make, make notes and random notes and on page after page after page and then I go back and I cross out the ones that don't seem to be going anywhere and I just work like that gradually refining it down to what's going to be the actual outline and then I word process the outline and send it to my agent. Now do you use the same file to expand that outline into the manuscript or do you start fresh? Well I have the I call it the synopsis, and I have a file on my computer called synopsis book number whatever. And when I'm starting a new scene, I go to my synopsis and I just copy and paste the little tidbit that describes what's going to happen in that scene. And I put it in a new file that has the name that that scene is going to have or the number or whatever code I'm using to keep track of them. But I just put that there to remind me. I don't then just expand those few sentences. I just write from that as that was the suggestion of what's going to happen. Excellent. All right, two more questions. This one is, what's your daily writing routine like? 
Um, I found I'm, I retired a couple of years ago, <clears throat> and um, I always was aware of this, but I could never take advantage of it before. I'm really uh, very alert and creative and whatever between like nine and eleven in the morning, um, and it, it's, it becomes a, a choice because you know, do I exercise? Do I go out and run errands, or do I write? Because that's when my energy is really up. And then um, in the afternoons, I usually uh, do other things because I'm, it's a little bit of an energy slump. Um, and then I had gotten into the habit of writing after dinner at night when I was working full time. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a natural for me to go back then. And so I think the ideal situation for me would be to write new stuff early in the day and then edit or expand That's on it at night. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, one thing that I was thinking when Shaggy was talking about her process, I'm a lot messier than she is. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not. It's one of my favorite organized. things about this interview yeah. is that we we have, you know, uh, very much uh, opposing styles, mm -hmm. and both are doing, you know, popular cozies. It's fantastic. But when I really have to come up with something fast, or I or I have a scene that needs to be expanded, or needs to be changed, I just brainstorm. Sometimes, some, and I used to brainstorm, you know, with a flare pen and a legal pad. I mean, I had my thing too, and I still do that sometimes. But now I can brainstorm on the computer. So a lot of times, I'll just change to all caps, and I'll say, in the next scene, blah, 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 blah. And I'll even ask myself questions, you know, uh, uh, does Mark have anything to do with this because they're boyfriend, you know. And um, then when I want to write the scene, I've got all this brainstorming stuff that I can look at and say, okay, I'll, now I refine it and I'll put it into sentences that really belong in the book. Uh, I like to do things, you know, spontaneously like that and just let ideas come in from anywhere because I'll get um, an idea for a twist that wouldn't have occurred to me before by just sort of opening up, you know, opening things up and saying, you know, what could happen here and can this person get involved in that thing and get involved. So that's basically how I expand my basic concept that I've turned into the editor. Excellent. Your daily, Peggy? Your daily oh, routine? I write in the late afternoon. <laughs> I, if I sit down and try to write, but I know that I have to go to the market or I have to do laundry or I want to practice guitar for a while today or I want to take a walk or exercise, that's just preying on my mind and I can't concentrate on my writing. So I try to do all those sorts of things, get them out of the way, and then I sit down at my desk. And I can work from three to six, four to six. If the day has really gotten away from me and it's already 5 p.m., I sit down and work anyway. Because even if you just write one page, you're one page closer to where you want to be. And if you write every day, even if it's just a little bit, you don't lose track of what you were trying to do and your brain is still kind of in writing mode. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so uh, someone's listening and they're like, wow, I'm fascinated by these authors. Where do they find your books? Where can they find out more about you? Well, I'm sure I'm, I speak for both of us when I say that um, our books are everywhere. Uh, <laughs> they're in Barnes & Noble, um, both in stores and online. They're um, on Amazon. Um, am I think forgetting any place else? Other kinds of booksellers, you know. Yeah. Um, Kensington has a big reach, so they yeah. uh, they uh, are out, out there everywhere. And uh, what was the second if you question? Want, you if they me? want to know more about you in particular or Peggy in particular, I have a website. It's www.ef as in Francis efwatkins.com, and it's uh, going to be expand, updated and expanded soon. But um, and I'm also on have a have a author page on Amazon. Cool. Excellent.
Yep, I have a website. It's PeggyEarhart.com, and I add things to it all the time. I have a feature on it that I call Yarn Mania, and I post, if I find an interesting yarn project at an estate sale, for example, some antique thing that someone made long ago, I photograph it and I describe where I found it. Sometimes I post my own knitting or crochet projects, so that's an ongoing feature. I Also, I have an Amazon author page, and I'm on Goodreads, I blog on Goodreads, and I have a page on BookBub. And wow. my books are available, as Eileen said, that Kensington distributes very widely, so they can be ordered from Amazon, ordered from Barnes & Noble. They're in many Barnes & Nobles. I think they're in some independent bookstores. And my books also are available in audio from Tantor Media, and they're available in large print versions from Thorndike. And those uh, end up in libraries because they're large print library bound which is a very uh, strong binding that won't fall apart when lots of people read the same book. Excellent. So, ladies, thank you very much. I learned a lot. I hope the audience learned as much. Go check them out and watch how they tell the damn story without (laughs) using the word damn. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very much. That was fun.